Hey guys, my name is Sharad. I'm your host of Recently Podcast and I'm super excited to have Jay Tenenbaum on this Recently Podcast. He's an expert in mortgages and notes, uh, so I'm really interested to kind of speak with him. Jay, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Terrific. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Man. Where are you joining in from? Scottsdale, our, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, Jay, let's get started. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get started in real estate investing business and kind of, you know, what you're doing now? What led you up to this point? Certainly. So um, I've been a real estate investor for about 10 years now. And actually, that kind of was the only real estate investing experience I ever had. I don't come from a generational family with real estate investors. The only real estate that I knew was, you know, buying and owning my own homes for the course of time. Uh, I was a debt collection attorney for 20 years with my wife um, prior to that. And uh, basically, I just, you know, I say I've been in, in debt all my life, just not personally. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, you know, I got an opportunity to go to a, a seminar uh, in August of 2013. It resonated with me because it was just another, another different debt instrument that I've been, you know, been used to you know, pursuing. So it came, it came kind of natural. Um, and it's, it's, you know, over 10 years course of 10 years um, it's grown we've got uh, we've done probably well, since I've been with Scottsdale mortgage investing which we founded in 2000 I came on board in 2018 my partner actually um, started the LLC but it wasn't doing much before that um, and uh, we've done probably 300 plus transactions about 75 million dollars worth of value um, in you know since two that really really since 2018 so what's about you know investing in like notes that attracted you over, let's say, going the traditional route of real estate investing, you know, like buying rental property, fix and flip. I'm always curious, you know, when people take like non-traditional route of investing, like what is it that led them down that path? You know, um, good question. It kind of evolved over time a little bit. Um, prior to the opportunity, the seminar I went to in August of 2013, you know, I'd gone to other seminars and, and my education over the weekend was great. But, you know, you, you leave those kind of opportunities going, well, come Monday morning, how do I find my deals? How do I find my deals, right? And that was always to be my stumbling block. Like, how do I do this? Well, this particular opportunity, the guy that, that um, did the seminar, you know, introduced us, uh, you know, cocktail party. He had a cocktail party after one of the nights, introduced us with, with other hedge funds, other seller, seller relationships. So, you be, plus, he's, you know, part of his package was his Rolodex of sellers, right? So, here all of a sudden, like, wow. I have access to sellers, how I could get deals, you know, access to deal, people having deals right away. That's probably what resonated and why I wanted to jump into this. Um, you know, it was it was something that I could understand. Um, it wasn't that difficult. Um, I had actually been investing in judgment liens in California prior to about three years prior to doing this. So I understood, you know, title and, and priority of, of, of things and mortgages and things like that already. Um, so now it was really a matter of you buying you know, the distressed mortgage world is you're buying mortgages from banks and hedge funds at a steep discount and you're either working them out with borrower or you're foreclosing and, and you're getting paid off at auction or taking the properties back. And when I first went into this, I looked at it going, okay, you know, like I said, it resonated that I have the opportunity to talk to live people with deals right away. But I guess I really, at the time, thought thought the, you know, the, the, the expectation was it was, I could be just like, you know, your fix and flip guy, I just was going to, you know, acquire an asset property, a potential property in a different route, a little circuitous, little, little circuitous 
than just you know knocking on doors and, and, and door knocking and stuff like that, which I didn't like. So that's how it started. It ultimately kind of evolved into because in my debt collection law practice we had you know a ton of wage garnishments and, and, and payment plans and everything like that. So we we're getting like you know monthly income coming in from the practice whether we you know had lights on or not. So doing loan modifications with borrowers, keeping them in their homes became really my, my forte on what on how I, I started that you know started this business, creating that cash flow again. So you talk about, you know, people wanna you know wanna buy, you know, rentals and things, right? They're doing it for the passive cash flow. Well I'm doing it in a little different way with lo- with doing loan modifications with borrowers. It's more of a win win. It's more of a um I mean I have all, I do on rentals, yes, but you know, loan modification is more of helping the borrower keep their home. So how do you get started? I'm curious, like, let's say I'm a brand new investor, right? Let's say I've never done this. You mentioned something about buying these, you know, distress loans from the banks. Are you just literally like calling banks and saying, hey, do you have, you know, distress loan to sell? Like, how do you go about it? You could do that. And my and my mentor, part of our, our mentoring program was, was, was doing that. It's a futile effort because you're going you're gonna to give you hundreds of calls on banks and you're gonna not find the right person or even talk to anybody in probably 90% of that. And maybe the, the 2% you do find, they're like, well, we don't have anything. We won't have anything for you know, next year. Um, it's kind of a futile effort. In actuality, for me, it was more relationship building. Just the relationships that I made of going to conferences and, and, and just, you know, again, from the start of, of who I met, you know, in the first uh, introductory seminar, parlayed into relationships that were fortunate enough where instead of saying, okay, I'm going to buy a loan or two from you and they never see you again, I've been able to cultivate relationships with guy, with banks and hedge funds that basically I can go to them almost monthly and go, okay, what do you have this month? So it's kind of a forward flow arrangement. So I really, I've only worked with, you know, probably two dozen plus sellers over the course of my career, but they fed me a ton of loans each. So when you say, when you say sellers, these are banks, right? Or these are brokers? Are, and or, 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 no, they're not necessarily brokers, but basically the evolution is you get, for example, Fannie, Freddie, HUD, Ginny, you know, like to put out, you know, huge tapes, right? And the Goldman Sachs's of the world will buy this stuff, you know, stroke Got eight, it. nine okay. figure checks, right? But they don't, but they're not in the business of working these loans. They're in the business of buying and acquiring as a commodity. So then they sell it to hedge fund B, who pays them a little bit more than what they paid for it. And ultimately goes down to, as we evolve from company, you know, let's say, you know, Goldman's over here and we're here. So we're getting okay. we're getting loans that finally got down to a seller that you know hedge fund that was right just a little bit larger than us, right? As okay. we've grown, we've reached a bigger seat of the table. So we're starting to get get loans from hedge funds that are larger in size than our, than our, than, our, in, than, than, than we used to. So we're getting you know greater opportunity. Um, in fact, it's kind of come full circle. We are actually selling loans on our trade desk to guys that I've bought loans from over the course of the years. Oh wow. That's awesome. Congratulations on the success. And and is this something you can do with the local bank also? Let's say if I'm a local investor just getting started, like how much I'm just thinking, you know, I love the idea of doing, you know, buying distressed loans, working with the the borrowers and trying to make some passive income. But how much money do I need? And then do I need to how do I go about building these relationships that I have? I do understand that I'm starting at the very bottom level. But what are my first steps? Like, you know, just walk me through like, you know, three or four steps of uh, the process. Sure. So, um, you know, the the money that you need really depends on your appetite of what you want to do. And just like anything else, 
I mean, in the real estate business, no matter what area you're in, it's always about raising capital, right? So True. it's not about how much capital do I need, it's how much capital is needed. Now, that's, you know, it depends on how much you want to grow, right? You know, we've got a strong, we've, we've evolved our company, we've got a strong appetite, so we're, we've raised a lot of capital in my career. But, you know, to get started, two things I think is probably um, the epitome of how you start. One, I didn't use my own capital in my first deal because I wanted to prove the concept. I just had some capital available and I had a couple partners that we all jumped in and bought three, bought three loans from uh, back in uh, January of 2014. Um, and then I got the opportunity two weeks later to buy 20 loans from the same, from the same hedge fund. Um, and I went to my, my, my mother um, who had the, you know, the capacity to, to, to pull off a $200,000 trade. And I bought 20 loans and doubled my money in like, four, in like nine months. They were all performing and I sold those re-performing loans um, and, paid her, and paid her off and, and she was happy about that. Um, so really it's a question, it's a combination of using your own capital to start just because it's available to you. Because until you get a track record, nobody's, you know, raise capital can be difficult. You know, you're gonna be, you can raise capital when you get, when you get, first get started, but it's gonna be from somebody who already knows, likes, knows, likes and trusts you. That may not be, may or may not necessarily be your family. <laughs> right. No, I agree. Um, I agree. I understand. Um, also, I think the other key to success is, is I would suggest partnering up with somebody who's already experienced doing it. I did. My partnerships that, that I created when I bought those first three notes were two guys that had already been investing in notes for a while. So I kind of piggyback mm -hmm. on, on what they do, what they're doing. Um, but if you partner up with somebody who knows what they're doing, takes the limit, you know, minimizes your risk, now you also have a track record. It's not about how your the first acquisitions finish. It's the fact that you first acquired them. Right. Walk me walk me through the numbers, Shay, if you don't mind. Like, give me give me an example of a typical deal that you would be doing. How much money would you invest in it? What would your rate of return look like on that? I'm just trying to like compare it to, let's say, buying a rental property, right? Like, I go out buy a rental property for 200000 Is that is that the amount of money you would need to buy loans? And what does your ROI look like on that? So, okay, I'll answer the, the, the answer to your question comes kind of two parts. I cut my teeth on what we call low balance assets. They're a little riskier. You want to diversify and buy multiple, multiple loans at a time because they're riskier. But back in 2014, 2013, 14, 15, you know, the, the climate back then was I'm buying a loan. Let's say the house is worth about 50 grand in the Midwest somewhere. The balance that the, that the borrower owes is the, probably at the time it would have been underwater. It would have been maybe like eighty thousand dollars that they owed on the, owed on on the loan still, and I would have picked it up for probably ten to twenty five thousand dollars. Okay. That's back. That was back then, right? Okay. Now, now again, you don't want to lie, ride or die on one loan like that. So you're probably spending fifty grand, and you're probably picking up three houses for 50, in that same scenario. So and then the value of those would be one hundred fifty thousand. You're paying about like you know thirty three to forty thirty to forty percent of the value. Exactly. Exactly. So let's say you're taking one of the loans in that portfolio, for example, you bought it for 10 grand and the borrower, and you work out an arrangement with a borrower that you'll, they'll pay you $300 a month. Now it's, you know, three quarters of a grape, but you got a 30, 36% return on your money. Right? So, yeah. you know, and that's cutting your teeth on the small balance up. Now, granted, on the small balance up, your ROI looks really good numerically, but you're putting $300 in, the, in your pocket, right? But you got to start somewhere, right? You're not going to go out and buy spend, you know, $300,000 if you don't know what you're doing on a house that, you know, and the landscape's changed, I'll get to that in a second. So you, so you, so 
I cut my teeth on that kind of stuff, and I did it well, right? Um, you know, cost of entry capital versus one rental. If I spend one hundred fifty thousand dollars on a rental, let's say Dallas or whatever, what I'm getting maybe maybe you know eighteen hundred dollars a month of rent, my cap rate isn't very good, right? right? And that's not you know, and then and then it kind of played out further. Let's say for example, I bought that loan for ten grand. I got the borrower to pay thirty, you know, three thousand three hundred dollars a month. The value of the house is worth 50 grand. It's still underwater, but because it's now performing, maybe I've created value add by its performance, right? Now I'm probably able to sell that loan on the secondary market if I want to, right? For, you know, $30,000 maybe. Oh, wow. So you tripled your money plus the cash flow that you have. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, once I season it, you know, maybe even, yeah, twenty-five, thirty thousand $30,000 is probably what I could. Okay, for maybe maybe more. Well, and now, what, in these days, do you need on that? It all depends. I mean, like I said, I can season it for one month. You may want to buy it at twenty-five grand. You may not want to buy that loan for me after one month. You may want me if I season it six months. It may be worth more. You may be paying more. It's really it's like it's an open market. Right? Right, I want to okay. sell it tomorrow, get X. And like I said, I bought it for ten, and I only got you know received a couple of payments. And you want to buy it for twenty grand? Would I do it? Probably. That's what I did in the first twenty loans, the first twenty loans I bought. Right, I didn't really care. I just turned my money over nine months. Right, um, you know, as as we've grown, and as I've grown, um, you know, now we're into you know the much higher value assets. Right, um, we're our, our average purchase is probably two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Our average home is probably worth four to five hundred. Well, three fifty, four hundred thousand. Price has gone up. You're really getting mm-hmm. stuff. You know, back in the day. Like I said, the low balance stuff where I'm getting probably 30 to 50 percent of, of, of the dollar. Now I'm probably 60 to 80 percent of the dollar. Right. Oh, but but again, in a higher value loan, there's more more spread, more potential profit. Now I'll tell you, just recently, you know, the home run of all home runs, which is not always going to happen, right? We bought a loan for 250,000 um, dollars. The anomaly was our seller. The, the area was kind of unique. There were houses on one side of the street worth about $300,000. There were houses on the other side of the street worth over a million. Our seller had the perception that this house was worth $300,000 and sold it to us for $250,000. You know, paying, we're paying about $0.78 cents on the dollar for it, right? Well, it turned out the legal balance, what the borrower owed, was well over a million. And so we closed at the end of the first part of this month, last week. Last week? Yeah. Um, on a short, we did, a, we did a short sale with the borrower. You know, we, you know, like I said, he owed us over a million, over a million dollars. We agreed to accept $952,000. Oh, wow. On a, on a two hundred fifty, $225,000 purchase. Wow. You made yeah. over like $700,000 on that. Yeah. But that, okay. That's a, that's a, that, you know, though, when you're buying a lot of loans, you're buying a portfolio, you'll hit those wins. Right. And you'll also hit, you know, take a property you missed on a property and you, and you end up taking it back and you end up selling it at a loss just because you want to get rid of it because it's you know you no one bid on it at a third party sale and, and it's been it's a piece of crap house you know it all balances itself out so walk me through you know it sounds like you need to do a lot of due diligence when you're buying loans right in this case you got you know i mean i don't want to say you got lucky but you know the stars were aligned and then you picked up this field what, what are the like four steps of, give me like four steps of due diligence that you're doing on the loans that come across your table? It's, it, it's interesting that you, that you call it four steps because there really is four primary steps. Uh, and and, and the, the acronym we always use is called BOTT, B-O-T-T. 
So basically, in your diligence, you're trying to determine the valuation, right? Because I'm going to buy something at 50 cents on the, on the dollar. I want to make sure I know what the value is, right? Um, you want to check for us because we like to keep borrowers in their homes. We prefer to buy loans that are occupied versus versus vacant. If the property's vacant, we're going to end up just taking it for closure. Now we may get we may do well getting sold a third party auction, and the auction appetite is very is still very strong. I mean, in back before the interest rates rose, it was really strong, right? Problem was, the problem was, when you're selling a loan, when you're taking a loan to auction at foreclosure, you're only entitled to receive, you're the bank, so you're only getting a legal balance. So for example, I may be owed $385,000 as my total legal balance. The property may get sold at auction for $450,000. I don't get that difference, but I bought that loan for probably 185. Okay, so you get only 385, and the right. other seventy-five goes to the homeowner. It goes statutorily to either any junior liens or, or judgments, and, the, and, the, and then the homeowners would be yes. Got it. Okay. So going, so, go, so going back, so so we prefer to buy occupied loans because we'd rather keep a borrower in the house. Um, we want to know what the tax liabilities are because if they're not paying their mortgage, they're not probably paying their taxes, and so you don't want to get a property lost to tax sale because tax unpaid taxes can wipe out your mortgage interest is it, is it right. just property taxes or personal income tax also Pro pro property tax property just taxes. the property taxes okay because your, your personal income tax if there's liens remember you're, you it's all about your title report right that's the fourth item is your title not that okay so your title in a in a, in a mortgage aspect is a little different than than title when you're buying a property the title you're buying a property you're saying okay i'm buying a property i want to make sure that i'm buying it the the, the, the settler is the true seller here, when I'm verifying title, I'm verifying a couple things different. One is that my loan is recorded where it's supposed to be. It's recorded the right the right amount. It's recorded the right date, right? Because the seller gives you a spreadsheet that says, "Here's loans you're going to buy," and you got your title reports will tell will verify that what he what you get on the spreadsheet is I'm buying this loan for this amount that was recorded originated on X date for X amount, right? Um, the other piece of the other piece of it is. When a loan, as I told you before, is a commodity, bought and sold as a commodity, right? It's basically saying, okay, Bank of America originates the loan. When they sell it to Goldman Sachs, that transfer is not a deed. Remember, nobody, this is all paper. Nobody's owning the property yet, if at all, right? So the transfer is an assignment from, say, Bank of America to Goldman. When Goldman sells it to you, you're going to get an assignment from Goldman. You sell it to me, I'm going to get an assignment from you. So in my diligence, when in my title reports, I'm looking at the recorded recorded assignments and make sure the chain is intact. Now, that's one area that if you miss on that, your custodian could really help you fix fix the chain assignment. That's easy. Okay. So valuation, occupancy, taxes, property taxes, okay. and then the title report. Correct. So you go through this. Like I'm just curious, like how long does it take you on average to do one loan? In the very beginning, it'll take you hours because you don't know what you're doing. Now okay. probably now it takes very little time, but I got I got to disclaim that my partner manages our analytic team. Okay. I, I I'm not wired to sit in front of a computer and analyze anything. I'm just not that I'm the I'm the deal guy. So my team runs the loss mitigation. So but okay. But, but part but what makes what makes us unique though is um, part of our diligence runs concurrent. Our analysts will run their values right. Our analysts will look at will look at the, the collateral. But so will we on the loss mitigation side. Because if we're going to work that loan, we got to make sure our collateral is intact to either start foreclosure or get a loan mod or whatever we're going to do. 
if the property, if the asset is already started for closure, we as part of our diligence require our sellers to give us attorney information. We want to call that attorney and say, hey, what is happening with this loan? Is proceeding to foreclosure no problem or it's been heavily litigated? Because look, if I've got 300 assets to look at, right? And one's been in, tied up in litigation because the borrower's heavily contesting it for five years. I don't need that asset. I don't care how profitable it could be. You're gonna, what, you're gonna, you're gonna get, could you that know, be part of a deal that you have to take this one asset with other like, you know, yeah, dozens that at, you're buying? At, at times, sure, yeah. at times, but you're getting a great deal. That's why with a portfolio, depending on the size, you're always diversifying your risk. Right. So when you get this package from, you know, the hedge funds or, you know, whoever your seller is, do you have any like room to negotiate? Or is it like the price is set, hey, you buy it at 50 cents on the dollar, that's the price, you know, no room you're all, to you're negotiate. Always, you're, always, you're always negotiating. But you're again, that's where, that's, where, that's where our analysts come through and say, okay, you know, we don't try to negotiate just for the sake of negotiation. It's, they analyze these deals with regards to what the profitability is. So if the seller says your price is going to be X, and we run it through our model, our proprietary model, and we know we can make, uh, you know, we've got certain benchmark returns that have the minimum returns we got to hit, right? If it hits, if it, if it, if it, if it comes through the bubble gum machine and hits our marks, why wouldn't, you know, we'll buy it. Yeah. Mm. As long as there's not other, other issues in diligence. Because remember, if I've got five, ten thousand dollars in property taxes, I will renegotiate that amount. You know, borrower, unlike real property, the taxes aren't cured. You take, you buy these at loans subject to property taxes. But if I've got a heavy property tax bill like that, a legal bill, I'll offset it to my purchase price. I'll fade what we call fading the purchase price. I buy a loan for fifty grand. There's ten grand in property taxes. I'm telling the seller, I'm going to buy that loan now for now for me for forty grand because I'm going to end up paying the same fifty. But I'll be paying the other ten to property taxes. All right. And then, do you buy nationwide, or are there any states that you will not buy in, or any counties or states? There, we buy nationwide. I, I gotta tell you a funny story. I think the, the last time I checked, I probably bought a loan, at least one loan, in probably forty-five plus states. Oh, wow. And while it's not a statistic, it's not a statistic that I I know really off the back of my hand, but it kind of started one day. Um, I was on vacation with my twin daughters and my wife. Um, and we were in Hawaii and we're sitting at dinner and my daughters who were probably 12 or 13 at the time start singing this song. First, first we start playing a game like, you know, vegetables and we start going through the alphabet. Name a vegetable, we go around the table. You know, vegetable starts with A and vegetable starts with B, right? Then they start singing the, the, the 50 states. They learned it in grade school. Uh, there's a song that they, that they memorized of how to name all the 50 states. And then okay. they come with it, with, with a tune to it, right? So then we, so then the conversation morphed into, okay, slow down your song, and when you name a state, I'll tell you yes or no whether we run alone there. At least I can remember. Right. And when we kept the scorecard, I think it was forty-five at the time. <laughs> that is incredible. That is incredible. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, the five states that you haven't bought in, any reason, or it just like you haven't come across? Prob probably, probably there's states that don't you don't see a lot of loans um okay i mean in, in the very you know if, if you like i i you know lived in california when i started this business right and california loans were tough to buy because a they were priced too high and b they just weren't all that available right so i learned from the very beginning how to invest nationwide now to some extent i envy those who are living in michigan or ohio because you're going to see on every package loans in those states right so you can buy in your backyard now i wouldn't want to live it up to, in ohio and michigan necessarily i'm spoiled i'm living, I'm living in more rural climates but 
you could learn, they, they learn how to invest in their own backyard. It's different, different aspect, right? Um, but you see, you know, there's certain, so, so if I was going to learn, live, only invest in my backyard, and I lived in South Dakota, I'd starve. I would never know, I would never see anything. If I live in Ohio, I could probably make a good living in my own backyard. Because there's, there's plethora of loans there right. in other states, in other states of Rust Belt and South, absolutely. Um, Florida, et cetera. Um, but no, uh, and now we're buying portfolios, but they just, these are what they are. Right. So, I, you know, we had on the uh, couple of podcasts ago, we had someone who does a lot of rental investing. Um, and he talked about, you know, not to get political, but he said, generally, when you're buying rental properties, you want to buy in red state because they generally tend to be more landlord friendly versus blue state, you know, which generally tend to be more tenant friendly. Do you notice anything like that with your note business or not really? I mean, depending on, like, it probably depends yeah, on yeah, what, yeah, how yes, 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 your laws are. Yes, exactly. Yes and no. Well, it doesn't really follow on red and blue lines, but you have to start as a starting point. You've got your judicial and your non-judicial states. Your right. non-judicial states are usually like the West Coast, California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Arizona, et cetera, right? Non-judicial states, because of foreclosure, Texas, your foreclosures are so fast, you're paying a higher premium for those loans. Right. Right. Okay. The mid, the mid, the judicial states, I'm getting bigger discounts because going in, we know it's going to take a while. Right. Okay. Um, um, I don't, they don't necessarily fall on, 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 uh, on, on this, red or blue, yeah, on red red or blue. Or blue. but, but for example, you know, I've got a love hate relationship with Illinois. I've done really well monetarily, but the foreclosures take forever just because they are very pro, pro, pro borrower. I mean, I had, I had a foreclosure once. It took three years. The lady was an older lady. She didn't want the property anymore, but she was just trying, not very hard, trying to find um, a assisted living facility to move into, right? And her attorney never filed a response to the foreclosure, but kept coming in at every hearing going, I want more time, my, my client needs more time, and needs more time. And the judge kept giving it to him. He didn't even file a response. He didn't make a formal appearance in the case. Yet. Jay, you're the only one with love-hate relationship with Illinois. Everybody else has hate-hate relationship with Illinois. <laughs> but I've done really well monetarily. <laughs> Yeah, I can, I can see that. I can see. I used to live in Chicago, so I can see. Uh, I mean, there's opportunities, but again, I I would not want to touch that state. Um, just it just so, seems so like for, for for example, because that's that's the hate part, right? All the bureaucracy, the delays, and all that. The love part was I bought a loan in um, Humboldt Park. Yeah, right? I'm familiar. Yeah, and, that's a rough fun. Okay, you know, it's it, you're buying paper. It is what it is. Right. right? So. I bought the loan, I think, for oh, it was about sixty thousand dollars. Right. And I had it. The value, the the, the unpaid balance was well over two hundred thousand, and I had it insured for again. We're talking, you know, underwater properties at the time. I had it insured for a valuation of about a hundred and fifty thousand, I think, um, hundred twenty thousand, something like that, and. I get a call one day, the borrower's son, borrower's Spanish, as you know the area, borrower's was Spanish. Um, her son was American born, spoke you know, perfectly English. He was actually a, a contractor doing business with insurance companies. So the property had, the second floor of the property had burnt, had, had caught on fire. And so um, I made an insurance claim. And the adjuster came out there, he helped, the, the son helped facilitate the adjuster coming in in about three weeks, the claim was was for like one hundred and twelve thousand dollars. Well, I had it insured for 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 a hundred. Sorry, and so um, 
I got a check for forty for for hundred thousand dollars. I made forty grand on my sixty thousand dollar investment. Right now, you're gonna say, well, if the claim was one hundred twelve. I lost out on twelve grand, but I still had a loan on a partially burned out house. Right. I go to the son. I go, does mom want to give me you know a deed in lieu? Because I still got to do something with the with that with the with the, my, my my security interest. And we ended up negotiating a short. She didn't want to de- give me a deed in lieu. But he did orchestrate uh, a short sale, so basically I got another twenty thousand uh, dollars as a short as a short sale. Remember, because the balance that was owed, you know, was was well over two hundred thousand dollars. Right. So minus so, two hundred thousand dollars check, you know, I got another twenty thousand dollars. Great. So help me help me understand this. Let's say you buy you buy a note on their property for like let's say the original loan is two hundred fifty, you buy it for sixty thousand, right? I come to you, now you are the lien holder on that property. I come to you and say, hey, Jay, I want to buy the property for 150000 right? You agree to it and sellers agree to it. So would you take that deal and make 90000 and sellers get to write off their loan? Is that, is that something yeah, that you that's do? A, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, I'm the bank. I'm the short, that's going to be for right. short sale. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then as long as the seller is on board to, you know, yeah, or, 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 sell, or sellers come to us and say, I got an offer to, to, to pay. Would you accept? Yeah, less. Well, again, got it. I, I okay. bought it for 60 and it, it, it wants, to sell, you know, wants, wants me to take 150. First of all, I can make a decision faster than, than in, the, in the old days where the banks are forever to make decisions. And right. what do I really care? I'm not holding out for that 250, especially if the house may not be worth it. Got the, house it. Okay. Worth, the house is worth 250. He'd have sold it traditionally anyway. Right. So, Jay, okay. That's, that's really interesting. I, I love that part of the business. You said you're a deal maker and then your business partner, he's the guy like who's doing the more on the, you know, analysis side. Like what is it about, you know, this business that you really enjoy? Is it like making deals, negotiating with the sellers or your borrowers? Like wh- what is it that you really enjoy about you, about this business? Just the, 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 deal, the deal making, keeping borrowers at their homes is, is one of my strong whys, sure. Um, and just, you know, the opportunity. I mean, look, it's you're in real you're investing in real estate. Whoever you know, whatever niche you're in in real estate investing, you love to be a real estate investor, right? You you buy rental properties because you want the passive cash flow. You know, I'm buying discounted loans because I'm getting property at I'm getting paper at tremendous discounts that give me the opportunity, loan by loan, to make a profit. We've talked about some of the home runs, but they're not. But that's not every day, right? There's all you know. You you, you get taken out at auction. You know, for example. We go to auction on a property that we don't want to take back. We don't want to take it back, right? So the same kind of thing. We maybe owe two hundred thousand. Property may be only worth, you know, a hundred. We bought it for sixty. We pay set. We may set the auction bid at like seventy thousand dollars, enticing a third party investor to just take it off our hands, right? So you're not going to hit home runs every day. You don't have to. And you will have to take it through the auction, or could you just reach out to local cash buyers in the area directly and say, hey, would you want to buy it for like seventy thousand? Well, remember, auction. remember, I only own the paper. I don't own the house. Right. So if, if a buyer comes to me, I'm either selling the note to them or they've got some deal worked out. They're getting a deed loop from the borrower. But the borrower's got to cooperate in that process unless until you get to auction. Because okay. I don't know. I don't own the house. I, I only own the, okay, I only own the paper. Right. And I, in fact, I, you know, many stuff I bought, I bought, I bought, I've never owned the house at all, right. ever. So at the scale that you're doing business now, are you, or even I'm curious, like when you first started out, were you talking to the borrowers directly or did you have like a third party involved 
negotiating with the borders and what does that look like now that you're doing it at scale? <laughs> um, I, I laugh for, 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 for a specific reason. I'm sure um, you've had some very interesting stories with that. Oh, always, always. Um, we, my partner and I used to be part of a real estate community where we ran masterminds and we, and we ran an out-of-state known investing mastermind. And in the mastermind, I always said, there's, my, our business model is open book. We'll teach you everything. We'll show you how to do everything we do, except one component I can't teach you, one component I won't teach you. The can't teach part is servicing, third-party servicing, right? It's federally regulated, it's technical, it's precise. I can't teach it to you. We engage a third-party servicer to, board, to service all our loans, right? That's just automatic. I won't teach you debt collection because of FDCPA and other requirements because I'm not going to run the risk of, I said something in, in, a, in a mastermind and said it was taken out of context and somebody called the borrower got sued and they said, you know, and I got taken out of context, right? Plus 20 plus years of debt collection experience, your head would explode if you really grasp it in, in an hour or two, right? Um, so I, I was blessed. I was blessed with the, with, with the experience to talk to borrowers myself. Yes. And, and starting out, I did. Now, as we've grown as a company, my, my you know, loss mitigation junior partner uh, lead, head, you know, head of the department, is phenomenal. So he does all that stuff right now, right? So and it's still being done in-house. You're not doing it, but yes. still somebody on your company. Yes. It's not yeah, a third-party company that is. Correct. There's not a, the servicers are overworked. They don't, they don't do it effectively. So, yeah, what, okay. what sets us apart is the fact that we do, we, 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 we do it internally, we can do it internally, and we do it very well internally. Got it. Okay, that's good. So looking back at your career, what would you say has been someone like, you know, the, the keys to you being successful? You know, it was, I think it was about like when you said initially, it was about like you happened to be in the seminar and you found sellers were already available, you know, ready to sell their notes to you. So you don't have to go down in the rat race of doing direct mail or other marketing to get motivated. So was, was that like kind of that led you to this, you know, journey of note investing? What have been some of the other keys for your success? Yeah. So referencing what you referenced. Yeah. I'm lazy. I like to hunt, you know, door knocking and, 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 and leads and all that. That's, that's, that's cumbersome. That, that, that doesn't interest me at all. So yes, you, when you have the identifiable seller relationship built, you know, almost from the scrap from start, that makes a lot of sense. The other keys to our success is just, um, uh, for me, I'm not a good loan ranger. I need, I need a solid partnership to make things work. I need, I, need, I need a partnership, I need partners that excel in areas that I don't, and then I, and I, and I can revalue you know, in areas that they, that they don't. And that's why my partner and I, um, Sandy Gershberger, are good, good together because I don't want to touch the analytics part at all. All right. So, so you basically, you and your partner have found things that work for you guys. And you're like, hey, this is my part of the business. This is your part of the business. Let's just double down on what we're doing. You take over the deal making. You take over the anal analysis part. And then you just got kind of just double down on what's working for you. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Tell me, tell me one of the, the worst mistakes you've made as a note investor. Like what's the worst deal you've done? You know, whether it's the... I, you know, hopefully it's a decent amount of money you made, but if you lost money, like tell me about like the worst, like the, 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 the investing note investing story that stands out for you, what, which one would that be? Well, I would, there's a story that, that, that stands out for sure. Um, it wasn't necessarily a mistake in the analytics or the diligence or anything like that. Um, 
It was just the occupant was an occupant from hell. He still is an occupant from hell. I used to have that. <laughs> oh God, yes. So we bought we bought a loan um, in Connecticut, and it was occupied, but we knew it was occupied not by the borrowers. A reverse mortgage. We knew the borrower was dead. And the once we got it once we got it back, the, the, the rules in Connecticut is if there's really not a whole lot of equity, it goes to call what's called strict foreclosure. So it doesn't get subjected to auction. We just get the deed back through the foreclosure process. So we got the deed back and we communicate with the borrower. He wanted to buy the house and stay there. Great, make us an offer. He's one of those guys of, well, I'll, you know, uh, I'll gladly do it Tuesday and you know, I, 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 the money will be available once my ex-wife's house sells. Well, is the house on the market yet? No. Um, we want to come in and before we've accepted the offers from you, we want to come in and see the house. Oh, my wife's got COVID. We, we won't let, we won't, I can't, I can't let you in. So finally, we had to evict him. Because he, remember, he claims they had an agreement to buy the house from the dead guy, but there's nothing in right. They didn't have a lease with the guy either. He just was like there, for like six years. So basically a squander? No, he, he was there. The, the, our deceased borrower put him there, but whatever okay. arrangement they put him there, there was nothing in writing to validate. Okay, but right. so he had no legal way to prove that he could occupy the property. We knew he was there. We, and he, like I said, but he had no paperwork to say, I'm a, I don't have a lease, I don't have an agreement to purchase. He just was there. So yeah. when, we, when we went to evict him, you know, court in Connecticut required you to go to mediation. Okay, great. So we, he, he comes to mediation and he enters into a stipulation that I'm going to vacate the property. It's like December. I'll vacate the property by the end of March. Great. He pays like, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars a month for, for the time that you're going to be there. Great. And he makes those payments. March 27th, he starts filing all kinds of stuff, you know, you know, just to stay, you know, appeals and, and motions to set aside. I mean, crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. Initially, the courts are receiving it and taking their time and then denying it. And he's such a kook that after a while, he, this, the courts aren't even letting, letting him file anything. He's filing appeals on that. He's trying to disqualify judges. He's filing bankruptcy. All in all, you know, so finally, we, we, we had our writ. And the local uh, sheriff, constable, um, went out to, 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 to take him out, like a normal eviction, right? Take, you know, lock him out. And he's barricading him, him and his family are barricading themselves in the house. Oh, wow. So the constable calls local police. Local police comes over and goes, nah, I don't want to get my fingers dirty. I, want to, I, don't, I don't need to do this. We finally had to get a federal marshal who didn't care to finally get him out. Oh, wow. And now he starts coming back and starts, you know, we, we started rehabbing the property. He starts, you know, putting chain link fence, fence around the pro our property, you know, destroying, you know, destroying stuff, you know, taking the video cameras and all kinds of stuff. So finally, he, gets, he thinks he's getting, I got to get, create, you know, stop points of creativity. So Scottsdale is, uh, you know, corporate an LLC, um, you know, incorporated, you know, established in, in other states, right? So he creates a, a Scottsdale LLC in the state of Connecticut and says, I own the property. Through my LLC, you know, Scottsdale LLC, you know, registered in Connecticut, I own the property. And the judge uh, was pretty hilarious. He writes an opinion that says, you know, dude, your argument, you're, you're full of it. Basically, what you're trying to say is, I could say I'm Elon, Elon, Elon Musk as, as well as I, I, you own this house, right? You can just walk around, you can walk around the country and say, I'm Elon Musk because I feel like it. He goes, no, you can't. 
Wow. He still he still is filing, you know. So then he still we're still in litigation with him. We've got injunction still against in him. And this has been oh, going yeah. on for what, three years? Um it's been about a couple years, year and a half with regard to wow. the stuff that he's, that he's pulling, yeah. Has that cost you a lot in legal fee, or you have like someone in-house that manages that? It's just it's like cost, a more it's, it's, it hasn't it hasn't been cheap, and you know it's just you know we can't really you know uh, the last thing he did was he actually conveyed the property to, to his LLC, conveyed it to himself, which is criminal. We don't so we've got injunctions and, and all kinds of stuff. This is just a okay. nightmare that will never that will never end. Yeah, this is this is a little bit more than like nightmare tenant stories, you know. Um, yeah, <laughs> right. it's it's that's crazy. So you're rehabbing the property and then you're gonna sell it. That's the goal. If this guy yeah. lets you sell it once you get out of litigation. What once we get out, once we get the deed the, the, the ownership oh, wow. interest. That is that is insane. Yeah, that's crazy. Crazy people out there. Yeah, Jay, this has been this has been really, really interesting. I have a few last questions uh going to diff, you know, next segment. What do you like to do for fun other than deal making? Concerts and sporting sporting events, and we've been doing a lot of that with my with my with my three uh, adult sons. We've been traveling around the country a little bit. We were in Ohio in July. We went to New York in in August or September. Um, you know, the Diamondbacks just you know made the World Series. We we did my, we went to all the playoff games there. Um, yeah, and my wife and I go to concerts, like local concerts, wherever, you know, whatever suits us. So yeah, we spend a lot of time sporting events or concerts. Cool. That's awesome. What's the most influential book for you in your life? It could be business, personal, or you could have one on each. Three Feet from Gold, written by a good friend of mine, Greg Reed. It's okay. a story. Awesome. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Three Feet from Gold story in itself is a story of an old Miner in the gold rush days, guy, insurance guy from from back east, who came out to California. He didn't know what he was doing, but he got lucky, and he hit a vein. And he's like, so he goes back to to back east and gets you know investors and gets all this money for all this equipment. Keep going forward, right? But he doesn't know what he's doing, so he goes horizontal when he should have gone vertical, right? He didn't know what he was doing, so um, he gets so frustrated that there's this this junkyard guy that kind of was following him around, and so one day the guy gives up and he says, you know what? Take my equipment, you can have it, you know, I'm done with this. But the junk guy knew what he was doing. So three feet from where the guy got frustrated, fed up, he had the largest, the largest gold, gold you know, largest vein in history at the time. Now, don't feel sorry for my for the for the guy. He went on to become very successful in insurance. But the book is about you know, the Gregory interviews, kind of like a, a follow-up to Napoleon Hill to go rich, because he right. interviews guys like the Coldwell Banker guy, a Century 21 guy, like Evander Holyfield, you know, guys that, you know, were, may have been hit bottom at some part of their life. Now you only know them as, you know, Cold, you know, Century 21, you, you know, it's one of the most successful real estate brokers in the country. Well, he was, you know, broken, fending off bill collectors and just the perseverance and such of how he persevered to become a successful brokerage, right? That's the stories that are, that are involved in this book. That's a great story. All right, this is a fun question. If you could spend a day with anyone, dead or alive, who would you want to spend the day with and why? Who? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was just at a conference in Dallas with the put on some good friends of mine. And um, the, one of the guys that put on the conference um, did what he calls it a note talk. And he basically said, similar question, if you could have dinner with five people, you know, who would they be and why? And he went through a whole presentation of, you know, so-and-so because of their passion, so-and-so because of their integrity, all this other stuff. 
The answer to your question, I, 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 I guess I, I wouldn't know because I guess is what day is it? What, 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 what am I yearning for? If I'm yearning for somebody to inspire me, it could be somebody else. If it was, I, I, I don't know. There are so who, many. Who people. comes to mind right now? Like in, in the state that you're in right now, who comes to your mind? You get a chance to spend the whole day with this person. The whole day with someone. Um, probably, it sounds kind of funny. Um, There's no bad answers. No, there really, well, there, there is, there isn't. I mean, I could say John F. Kennedy, but now we're getting into politics. So there'll be people I said, well, you know, I don't like his politics, whatever. Um, but I mean, he was such a, you know, he had, he, he you know, he was obviously cut short, but you know, what he, what he could have done, what he could have done was, was, right. was intriguing, is intriguing, right? Probably somebody like from the Roman empire, like Socrates or somebody, somebody that, that really has the, the, and I'm not a deep thinker. It's just somebody that's, that's inspirational. That's awesome. That's very close to my answer. I, I would want to spend the day with Marcus Aurelius. I've been reading mm -hmm. a lot about Stoicism. He's a Roman emperor. So I would want to spend the day with him. Yeah. Right. Great answer. Yeah. Cool. I mean, if Bye, I, if I, I've, always, I've always thought of it as, is if I had a former life, what would I be? And you know what really intrigues me? This is totally off, off base of who would inspire me, who I'd want to follow the day with, or who I would have dinner with. But if I was born in a different time frame, yeah. I'd probably, and not, and not, here's, okay, I'll explain, I'll explain who, what I would be, like probably uh, a gangster in, the, in the, like the 30s and 40s, not the horseback riding, you know, robbing banks and trains and stuff like that, but like, you know, Al Capone or something like that. And not because I'm a criminal, just because of the deal making. The, the adrenaline of the deals. <laughs> I get that. I get that. Yeah, I can totally see see you like getting all excited about that. No, that's that's. I I can totally understand that. Yeah. Cool. Now, Jay, this this has been really really incredible. Thank you so much for sharing all the knowledge and wisdom that you have. So, anybody that's listening to this show, and if they want to be in touch with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? So, go to our website, uh, www.scottsdalemortgage.com investments.com um, there's a whole plethora of information sign up for our trade desk um, and we you know we'll get you started in, in your investing career because we have assets to we as a as seller relations that I started when I first started we have assets to, to sell as well awesome thank you so much Jay. this has been really incredible uh, thank you so much for being on the show and I'm, I've really really enjoyed our conversation my pleasure thank you so much for having me thanks